Post. This is Probate Weekly, where we get together every week and talk about things probate real estate related, whether you're an investor or a wholesaler, a real estate agent, an attorney, a vendor in the field. Um, we get together and talk about how we can all help our customers and ourselves uh, be more successful by making more money and by increasing wealth of ourselves and our clients through real estate. Um, and let's see here, I see <laughs> our guest and let me see if I can get him unmuted, I'll add him in the spotlight. And so we often have guests to interview, to be educational, to network, to learn about things. Just a quick housekeeping before we get launched there. Um, uh, we're now going to kind of be a little stricter on the sign-up process, and the reminders are going to kind of encourage you to go to the YouTube unless you want to participate. Love to have you participate. Love to have your cameras on. Love to have you chat and ask questions. Raise your hand. Ask questions live. We have we have a real live attorney here who would charge a lot of money for his advice. Uh, a chance to get some free uh, questions in, but you need to come into the Zoom to do that. Uh, otherwise, if you just want to watch, um, we're going to kind of encourage you to come to the YouTube where we live stream it as well as recorded in the past episodes are there as well. And if you want to be reminded when that launches, you're welcome to go to the YouTube and subscribe. And then you'll know if you hit the notification button, you'll get an email reminder within YouTube if that's a more convenient way for you to come into the to get this material. But this is meant to be participative. I'm a practitioner. I'm not selling coaching. I'm not selling data. Uh, I'm here selling, representing uh, families, working with attorneys, selling houses, uh, helping investors buy property. And uh, I do this every day. This is what I do for business. And so along the way, I've, I realized I need to network with other practitioners as well as learn how to be better at what I do and then learn how to be better at serving the vendors that we work with or the attorneys, or the families we work with. So today, I'm really excited to have a guy who I've seen, uh, saw him on YouTube, and then had a chance to talk to him individually one-on-one. -on -one. Just an incredible resource, uh, an attorney who specializes in evictions based in Northern California, in San Francisco, attorney Daniel Bornstein. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. I'm excited to be here. So just a little background so we can get to know who you are. Where did you grow up and then what, what prompted you to get into the field of law? So uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and uh, after uh, graduating from high school, uh, went out to uh, University of Michigan as an undergrad. And at that point in time, I realized that uh, there was a, a deep desire to help people resolve disputes and do so in an effective manner. And I uh, got lucky and got out to Northern California and uh, went to Berkeley and uh, started my legal uh, career as a student at uh, the law school. And thereafter, uh, landlord-tenant law was an available area of law that a young attorney who wanted to be entrepreneurial could immediately develop uh, client relationships. And as a result of that, over the course of uh, approximately 28 years, I've built a wow. nice uh, practice <clears throat> helping people resolve their landlord-tenant disputes. So let's give a little context to what your practice looks like. Do you represent tenants only? Do you represent landlords only or both? 98% uh, is uh, representing owners, uh, investors, uh, mom and pop, uh, uh, property owners, brokerages, real estate agents in resolving their disputes, whether it's uh, residential or commercial. And is your business strictly uh, tenant landlord relations or do you get into the wider areas of real estate law as well? 
Well, interestingly, I'm also a real estate broker. I have a uh, brokerage and a property management uh, business. And as a result of being in landlord-tenant law, I'm also a real estate investor. And so at times I'm tasked with representing people in the defense of uh, buy-sell agreement, uh, failure to disclose, but primarily my focus on a day-to-day -day basis is representing people in resolving their landlord-tenant disputes. Now, it seems to me, now uh, just kind of full disclosure, most of my market has been California, though we've made this a national phone call. We've had attorneys and real estate agents, investors from across the country, more Southern California, because that's where I'm from initially, and that's where the following came from. But I saw you, and I know that San Francisco is different laws in the county and city, but we're in the state of California, and it seems to me to be pretty similar to Los Angeles. Don't expect you to know all the details of LA law, but is your assessment that San Francisco is somewhat similar to the city of Los Angeles as far as uh, landlord laws and things like that? Yeah, so there are, uh, in some respects, two overarching uh, jurisdictional issues. Does your local jurisdiction have a state, I'm sorry, have a local rent control just cause eviction ordinance? Uh, and many, of course, Santa Monica has uh, uh, what uh, some would consider to be a very restrictive. And if your local jurisdiction does not have a local ordinance, then you self-select into the state ordinance that recently came into effect. So really, I would need to know which uh, jurisdiction we're talking about, and then I could uh, tell you what uh, rules and regulations structure the relationship between a landlord and a tenant. And interestingly, when I first started out in the Bay Area, we had Berkeley, uh, we had San Francisco, and then we had Oakland, three. Now there's 15 different uh, local ordinances that you need to be aware of. So we have become very, very balkanized in our landlord-tenant relationships, and each one has a little bit of a nuance. And if it doesn't fall within that, then we're faced with the state recently enacted low, uh, just cause eviction state rent control ordinance that came into effect approximately December 2020. Well, that sounds like it's good for business. <laughs> uh, every new law feeds uh, more and more attorneys, and uh, that is the unfortunate aspect of a industry that is highly regulated, such as real estate. So when you look at this, are you what percentage of your time is as an attorney representing a client? What percentage of your time is spent on your own? practice and your, you know, your own investments, your own real estate brokerage? If you're oh, 95% of my work is uh, uh, representing uh, clients in the legal field. Uh, my property management company is, uh, while I'm the broker of record, I have a core group of experts who handle that. And then they also uh, oversee the real estate investments I have as well. Got it. So what's the most common case or you know, case scenario that you deal with as an attorney uh, in an eviction case? An eviction uh, case. Mostly non-payment rent. Uh, that would be the first one that would come to mind, uh, that every month there's a deluge of opportunities for me people to fail in their obligation, which is uh, the timely payment of rent. Uh, and so that's where uh, we get that rhythmic uh, new client at the beginning of the month, because by uh, the 10th of the month, they're starting to get uh, concerned about why someone hasn't paid the rent. It's become particularly cumbersome, complex, confusing for the lay real estate investor as we involve uh, COVID and some of the COVID prohibitions, uh, some of the COVID moratoriums. But uh, the bulk of my work is uh, non-payment of rent, 
uh, nuisance behavior, illegal use of the premises, owners who want to recover possession of the unit for their own use, breach of lease agreements, uh, and what have you. And that may also include drafting lease agreements, uh, enforcing lease agreements, negotiating terms of lease agreements. It really is a, uh, a rich and complicated practice, but uh, much of it involves uh, similar act actions on a monthly basis. Um, so obviously we're aware that we're in different times than we were a couple years ago, uh, statewide uh, cities and counties have ordinances regarding COVID. What's the process today for non-payment of rent? Let's say in the city of San Francisco, um, is there a process to uh, evict for non-payment of rent or is it still uh, restricted and um, unavailable? Uh, San Francisco opened up uh, oh, wow. and, and you are entitled to demand rent that hasn't been paid. Uh, in San Francisco, though, uh, despite the state moratorium ending on COVID, uh, San Francisco imposed its own moratorium. And thus, if you pursue a non-payment of rent case and a tenant asserts that their failure to pay the rent was predicated upon a COVID financial impact, that would be a defense to the unlawful detainer action. Uh, and so we're still dealing with the repercussions of COVID. Uh, yet we are entitled to pursue those uh, unpaid rent claims, but we're not sure how the case is going to resolve until we get into the case to determine if the defendant has a legitimate basis to claim that they did not pay the rent due to a COVID impact. And if they can prove that it was because of a COVID impact, then they're pretty There's, much just impossible to get them out of the property, isn't it? Uh, it would be a defense, and yet we still recommend uh, being aggressive. And the reason being is uh, sitting and doing nothing only enlarges the dispute. And 98% uh, of all cases settle through resolution. And even if a tenant has a COVID-related impact, that doesn't prohibit you from negotiating a voluntary move out, doesn't prohibit you from reaching a resolution regarding the prior debt. Uh, yet you are, in some respects, uh, compromised by virtue of the defense that's available. Interestingly, in Alameda County, we still have an eviction moratorium, so you're not allowed to demand unpaid rent. And so you cannot go to the court and seek uh, the removal of a tenant uh, through an eviction. LA County, as I'm sure uh, many of you know, uh, has struggled with its own local eviction moratorium, and there's been a movement to end the moratorium towards the end of this uh, year. And uh, that, uh, you know, is uh, something that uh, Alameda County is the last of the counties in California that has an existing uh, moratorium. It's been challenged in court, but the court has not rendered a ruling. Recently, as of last week, Governor Newsom indicated that uh, the COVID emergency he intends to end uh, within the next uh, few months which uh, will be helpful. Um, my hope is that the community continues to be healthy and get healthier and that the terrible impact this pandemic has had on all of us is something that we look in the rear view mirror and treat as a historical anomaly, but we are still dealing with the repercussions of it in the court system. Well, I, I made a prediction, I'll just say it again publicly for what it's worth, that I don't believe in LA County even when the state Moratorium ends. I don't. They kick the can down to the end of the year. The idea, it's kind of phrased like, "Well, they'll it'll be over then." But I'm, my prediction is that they'll continue it. And if they don't continue it, politically, they'll make it impossible for judges to hear those cases. Physically, they'll shut the courts down. And I yeah. think it's going to be very, very difficult to get that 
be started. I just don't see that. Yeah, uh, all I can tell you is housing is very, very politicized and landlord-tenant law is especially political because you're dealing with people's uh, housing. And as a result of that, uh, different interest groups have a different approach to public policy relating to it. It can be very, very frustrating for uh, someone who is sitting with, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of unpaid rent debt. And um, I've had uh, people ask me, well, what should I do? And their properties in Alameda County. And I, uh, my flippant answer is uh, pray. And uh, the reason being is that I don't have uh, the array of choices because I'm hamstrung by a moratorium that if you demand the rent, you are in fact uh, subjecting yourself to potential criminal prosecution. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the uh, this particular live stream, though regular evictions is a part of my business as a broker as well, even in probate, we have properties where the state inherits a property that has a tenant, and that's a more standard eviction. But there's a unique um, aspect to probate where we often have an heir who, without ever having a contract, some sort of a verbal agreement, uh, was there maybe before the seed and passed, maybe moved in after the seed and passed. And there's different circumstances and laws affect those people than uh, a tenant with an actual um, uh, contract. Can you kind of give us a little overview of sure. what, what options are available for an estate that has uh, a, a person who happens to be an heir, whether before or after the seed and passed? Um. I handle uh, these type of uh, uh, situations uh, quite frequently, and I work closely with uh, trust and estates attorneys who uh, have a niche in understanding trust and estates law. But when you start to migrate into uh, landlord-tenant law and unlawful detainer actions, they simply are hamstrung. And similarly, I won't get involved in a probate matter uh, because I don't have that core expertise. What I do have the expertise is in asking pointed questions to a trustee or to a, a trust and estates attorney is, who is this person inside the unit? Is there a landlord tenant relationship? If they're a beneficiary, were they given the right to occupy the premises simply because of their familial status and they don't pay rent? And if they don't pay rent and they don't have a landlord tenant relationship, they're not a tenant. And if they're not a tenant, they're not entitled to the accrued benefits of many of the laws that structure landlord-tenant relationships, including local just cause eviction ordinances, local rent regulation ordinances, and it makes it very uh, different of a removal process. And the simple analogy is if I give you permission to live in a unit without the expectation of compensation, simply because you're a family member, the a law allows me to rescind that permission. So that person is a licensee, someone who was given permission to occupy, and you can rescind permission. And if you rescind permission by a written letter notifying the beneficiary of the estate that you're no longer entitled to be here, we've made a decision and you need to leave. If they don't leave after receiving that letter, then you have perfected your right to file what we call a forcible detainer action. And that is similar to a unlawful detainer action. The results are the same, but you're not under the statutory rubric of a landlord-tenant relationship, which makes it easier to remove. Are those um, um, de uh, detainers um, limited by COVID restrictions as well, statewide? And Interesting. Uh, no, they weren't because there wasn't yeah. a tenant in that right. uh, in that uh, unit. There was merely someone who had permission to be there. Right. But what you need to recognize is every county court operates a little bit differently. 
every county court has a different culture. And if they see something that looks like an eviction action, they may slow it down because they're trying to be cautious. And right. then I have to explain to them, hey, this is not a landlord-tenant relationship. Right. This is someone who is occupying a unit who doesn't have the protections of right. the ordinance. Right. And a lot of probate attorneys and trust and estates attorneys really aren't able to delineate the process. And it really is a fork in the road right. because you can have a beneficiary who also is a tenant because they Correct. have a lease agreement and are paying rent. Correct. In that situation, they do have the protections. Correct. If they were merely in the unit because, hey, mother gave them a space to live because they never got their life together. When mother passes away, you're certainly entitled as the trustee of that estate, the successor trustee, to say, look, the remaining beneficiaries are looking to sell the asset. We need you out in order to maximize value of the uh, sale. And if you remain in there, we will seek legal intervention. And more importantly, if you're a beneficiary, why would you uh, sabotage the benefit of maximizing value out of the estate, which you're going to participate in, by staying in the unit? And oftentimes, yeah. with uh, a little assistance of myself or another attorney, the beneficiary gets sober and arranges a time transition from the property. However, where there are family members that they have a historic residue of um, uh, discomfort with each other, distrust. That's a great word, historic residue, by the way. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to use that historic, phrase. I, I say that because there's a lot of that in trust and estates work. Yep. If you've got a beneficiary who's upset because they're not receiving the full uh, what they fully expected and they're camping out in a unit, they may sabotage other beneficiaries by wanting to cleave to the unit and make it difficult out of spite. And it is regardless of whether it's in their best interest to camp in there. And that's when I get involved. Uh, I get involved and I uh, send them uh, the bad news, which is your time there has to come to an end. And if you don't vacate, then I'm going to have to file the lawsuit. If I file the lawsuit, typically 90 days later, we've got a resolution with a voluntary move out of the premises. Well, and the the bad news for the beneficiary is they get charged all those legal costs on their portion of the, you know, they're thinking, oh, I only have one fifth of the house. What difference do I matter? The answer is no, all that cost, uh, the, the executor, you know, they're smart, can allocate all those costs to that beneficiary and the probate judges, my experience will prove that, so. Yeah, absolutely. So where uh, someone ends up impacting uh, the estate and depleting the assets of the state, it will come out of their portion. Yeah. Uh, Shai asked a question. I think you just covered it. So let me just summarize. I, quick disclaimer, though you are an attorney, he's not giving us legal advice. He's more educating us as to the law and general procedures and practices. Shai asked, does a power of attorney have the right to evict the sister living with mom? Well, of course, power of attorney, right away, it's a whole different situation and change the locks and threaten to change the trespassing for the daughter to come and get her stuff. So I guess it depends on who owns the house and, and, and well, Neil and, Rafael should probably answer that. Very good question. You know, um, if the daughters lived there for you know, many years, I'm not in favor of uh, just uh, changing the locks uh, because it could be deemed a uh, unlawful lockout and that's um, uh, a violation of California law. However, there are times where, you know, someone comes into a unit and they didn't have permission to be there. They're a trespasser. The problem that exists in California is that police officers are often educated about landlord-tenant matters a little bit. And whenever they have a situation where we're dealing with housing, 
they won't remove the trespasser they'll say it's a civil matter and we'll leave the person in there and then the client calls me up and says i can't get this person out i called the port police uh the squatter said they have tenancy and the police won't do anything about it and so then you're stuck with having to proceed with the civil matter or alternatively be super aggressive and lock a person out. If the person doesn't have a tenancy and they were merely there for a couple uh, hours, a couple days, of course you can forcibly uh, remove them, but you gotta be careful about it because you right. don't wanna enlarge risk for yourself. Right. My suggestion is when you're contemplating such a move, contact an attorney and yeah. the attorney will evaluate it. The one thing I will say is this, Anybody who has been a uh, sophisticated consumer of legal uh, uh, assistance will realize if you talk to two attorneys, you may get three different opinions. And really, it depends upon the type of attorney that practices, whether they're aggressive, whether they're very conservative. There are some attorneys who are so scared of their shadow, they will do nothing and end up costing right. you more money and taking more time to get something done that's rather apparent, which is, look, if someone's in your property and they don't have a tenancy, you don't have to go through a formal 90-day uh, eviction process. You can tell them to get out and actually change the locks on them, but case by case basis yeah you know it, the thing about mike's practice is people say well aren't you sympathetic to the daughter living there and i'd say well i'm also sympathetic to the widow who can't sell the house to pay for medical bills and she's living a horrible life impoverished even though her husband who was a war hero left her this house because some squatter moved in on the property so sometimes it, you can be sympathetic to the wrong person and not uh, I, I, there's what i call competing narratives and uh, there's competing goals. If you hire me, then I'm to zealously represent you. Um, I am absolutely empathetic to the complexity of life and the fact that uh, certain things result in bad news for people and having to make chapter changes in their life. But in the end, uh, I'm only um, responsible for the person who has hired me. And my job is to ethically complete the goals that they have set for myself uh and you know it is tricky and it's particularly sticky when you're dealing with family members in a uh, a trust and estate situation yeah. or where you have um you know ill will arising out of decades of perceived slights and i cut to the chase i uh, can't get emotionally invested in other people's trauma i have to actually give people what they have hired me to do and as a professional that's my orientation and that's how i sleep well at night because um it is not atypical where at times um you can be retained and as you get into a dispute you start to be empathetic with the other side and find your client to be especially aggressive and the only thing you can do is either self-select out of that relationship or continue to work in an ethical manner to accomplish your client's goals. Um, for everyone on the call here, if you're on the Zoom call, love to have you participate. Raise your hand in the Zoom, put a question in the chat. We've had some really good uh, uh, questions here from Sean. We have another one here, here teed up. But the issue, we are also welcome to participate. If you're watching on the YouTube, we live stream it there. But if you put the comments there, they'll pop up as well, and we'll have a chance to ask uh, Daniel live. So. Um, and does the executor have an obligation to the to inform the beneficiaries of the probate date and assets? So that's a probate question, which I, I'm not sure Daniel, how familiar you are with trust as far as it is, is an executor. Uh, of course, in a probate, it's all public. So I'm, I think you're asking about a trustee and a trust administration situation because an executor 
um, of course, all the beneficiaries are going to get notice by law um, of, all, of, of all the key, key uh, points. Are you in, uh, familiar with a state administration, you know, trust estate uh, law and obligations as far as notifications and such? Uh, no. And as I mentioned, uh, if I were ever to be asked to uh, opine upon a trust and estates matter, I'll defer to the expertise of a trust and estates attorney. What I am is sort of uh, the hired third party who handles the landlord tenant disputes or the beneficiary disputes regarding the uh, presence of the beneficiary in a unit. I will say, as far as a shameless plug, the last on last week's episode of Probate Weekly, we did have a trust and estate attorney specialist. We asked that exact specific question. So if you go to episodes.probateweekly.com, you'll see the prior episodes. And in last week's episode, we went through those, really that whole discussion of uh, required notice and if there's a trust and copies of the trust and all that. We went through that in detail last week. So, But the beauty of Daniel, and I think you know, what I want to point out to the real estate agents, because in some ways our business is similar in terms of our license allows us to do a lot of things. You know, as a realtor, I can sell to first some home buyers, I can do investment property, I can sell commercial, industrial. My license allows a huge variety of product and situations. In my case, I pick one very narrow niche of probate. And, and Daniel's sharing with us as an attorney, he has the license to practice all kinds of law, but you can just see how quick he is to, um, I don't want to say avoid, but um, you know, stay within the lines of where his expertise is. Because if you want to get the great information on uh, evictions, you go to him. And if you, you know, if you're going to ask him a question outside that line, he's going to refer you to a great attorney in trust or probate or the other matter that's related. And I think there's some great business advice for all of us to watch in that. So just come taking off the attorney hat, maybe putting on the 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 entrepreneur hat or the business person hat. What is it that keeps you kind of in those lanes? You you know, repeatedly in our conversation. And previously, and what I admire about you is your focus. I think that's your strength as a, as a practitioner. What is it that helps you stay in those lines? Because there's always a temptation. Well, gee, that's an extra case. It's an extra check. It's extra money. How do you keep in those lines? Or what does that keep you there? Once you develop a competence in a particular set of rules and regulations, uh, you are so much more effective than anybody else that there's no reason for you to be venturing away. I have so much uh, business in this one niche that it doesn't make sense for me to venture. And once you develop a confidence in your professional integrity, you don't want to relearn an area of law. And the interesting thing is that um, you really, if you're selecting an attorney and you have a particular issue, you really want to ask them, are you doing this type of work repeatedly? Or is this new to you? And out of deference to that client, if it's new to you, you should be referring him or her to someone who's doing it all the time. Because what we want this to be is administrative processing of paperwork, as opposed to you going back into the library and learning how to do it. Because a lot of my clients who come to me, they got in trouble because they relied upon their cousin in Stockton, California, who practices personal injury law, and he decided to help his uncle out on a landlord-tenant matter in San Francisco, not knowing that you can't use the forms that are available on the California Apartment Association website because the forms are local-specific. So when you are choosing an attorney, you really want to ask that tough question of, do you do this all the time? And law has become so niche specific 
that there are types of unlawful detainer eviction actions that I will not do because there are other attorneys who, who are doing it all the time. And out of respect for the client who I want to have excellence, I want him to go to someone who's excellent. Because if you're having to redo it because of a mistake, one, it creates professional liability. And two, it's not a way to uh, function as a professional. You want to give excellent advice. And if you don't have it, you want to connect that person to someone who can provide excellent advice. And there is no shame in finally recognizing that you're not going to know everything. And I often tell people, look, uh, in San Francisco, I'm feeding a family off of about 10 pages of the municipal code. And that if you told me when I started law school that I would become uh, well-versed in 10 pages and that's going to continue to feed my family for you know 20 years, I would have been shocked. But I, I would have thought I would have had a wider array. And the reality is, is that once you learn the nuances of a very technical area, which is landlord-tenant law, you really... Uh, can continue to do it and the size of your client base just continues to enlarge because landlord tenant law people in real estate they're going to have a landlord tenant dispute at some point in their career because it's endemic it's a very complicated area and you have the overlay of local law state law covid moratorium revisions to the covid moratorium and the interrelationship between it and it is very complex. Plus changing politics. I mean, that, that's, it's an area that's not even the law, right? But you have to negotiate your way through the reality of their people who have a political position that may or may not be in accordance with the law, right? Yeah, it's just I, I, I was on the news uh, yesterday. Uh, Oakland is again. charging. Uh, it was a- uh, Excuse me, Susie, you were on the news again yesterday, yeah. it turns out. Yeah, I was on the news. I was being interviewed at uh, on a 6 p.m. news channel because Oakland is uh, introducing a new law that's going to be voted upon to enlarge the uh, real estate uh, multi-unit uh, properties that will be subject to just cause eviction rules. And I had uh, contemplated uh, that uh, that will uh, likely result in more people deciding not to rent those units because they don't want to be uh, uh, put into a position where they're subject to an ordinance. Because once you have just cause evictions, uh, a fixed term lease does not really mean you recover the unit. It means that the tenant is entitled to be there as long as they're not subject to a term uh, just cause. Uh, what immediately came after my dialogue was a uh, legal attorney from a nonprofit organization who argued um, that, look, uh, that sounds like um, uh, Mr. Bornstein doesn't uh, want to analogously have um, uh, hourly fee obligations uh, with um, uh, minimum wage on employment. And the analogy was totally off. But what was clear was the politics behind it, which was suggesting that the landlord-tenant relationship without just cause eviction rules has no laws. And in right. fact, it has an abundance of laws. Right. It's just that we don't need to have laws that are um, in some respects overriding the contracts that people actually enter into. Um, one of the um, uh, proposed laws, I'm sure you're aware of in San Francisco, is about uh, properties that are vacant. Yeah. So um, it must affect you as either an investor or as a broker, if not as an attorney. What is is that going to is that going to pass? Do you think? And what effect is that going to have in the market? 
Uh, well, uh, being taxed for making a decision not to rent. Typically, when you own a piece of property or you own a car or you own something, you have the right to use it. You also have the right not to use it because you uh, own it right. and you can do with it what you right. believe is your right within reason as long as it's not uh, mm -hmm. volatile to the law. Because of the housing crisis and owner's decision not to rent and keep it vacant engenders the risk of being taxed. In Oakland, they have a vacancy tax. And in San Francisco, that's uh, contemplated. Uh, we have a housing crisis. It makes uh, the politics of landlord-tenant law that much more uh, problematic. But the easy solution is something that uh, takes a lot of courage, and that's build and build and build and build more housing. Right. And that is something that California has had uh, difficulties with because of an, a number of problems. Right. Um, I don't get involved typically in the public policy debates because I'm so busy with just the practical responsibility of managing the disputes I've been hired to manage, but I am aware of it. And, you know, one of the ironies is, um, whereas uh, the perception of someone who is handling landlord tenant law as a landlord attorney is that I'm, um, you know, um, uh, aggressive and not attractive because I'm involved in evictions, the reality is that many people come to me in a community where there's a tenant who's disturbing the other tenants and the tenant is a nuisance and what i'm doing by removing someone from the property is actually stabilizing the other tenancies and empowering right. the community to be healthy right. because there's nothing worse than having to pay rent in a community where other people are so disturbing because of their dysfunction that they're impacting your ability to actually have a happy life in that building so I pride myself on helping stabilize buildings by making sure that other tenants who are great tenants are able to function effectively on a day-to-day -day basis by getting rid of people who simply are not able to participate healthy in that community. One well, of the other things that impressed me about you when I did my research and then when we spoke personally was that you seem to be focused or point towards or strategize towards a resolution other than going through the courts, meaning that a larger number of cases you handle seem to end up being resolved by both parties rather than the paperwork mill of eviction, fighting it and all that. Mm -hmm. um, talk a little bit about that. If I'm a client considering hiring you though, you can't promise that. There's no way to know if mm -hmm. the other party's ever gonna be reasonable. I'm only hiring you because I assume they're unreasonable. So how do you counsel clients of what to expect or what's a reasonable outcome to plan uh, for? Very good point. I uh, am looking at the dispute from a business perspective. The real estate may be worth three quarters of a million dollars, two and a half million dollars. The unpaid rent debt is $16,000. But having the person transition out will increase the value of the real estate. So I'm looking at dispute resolution from an economic standpoint. I take the Hippocratic oath like a doctor of do no harm. And I believe that you paying me for a dispute and paying me too much to resolve the dispute is economic harm. So I always tell my client, the whole goal is to recover possession of the premises as fast and as cheap as possible, taking into account attorney fees, time and risk. And that means that when I'm giving you advice, 
you can always say to me, why do you recommend that we waive two months rent and provide the person $5,000 to vacate? And the answer will be because it's going to take three months to get to court. It may cost you $5,000 and you still have a housing problem because you have a leak in your unit. So you're better off paying the person accomplishing recovery of possession as fast and as cheap as possible. And this, based upon my evaluation of the facts, is the best course of conduct. And I will tell you, there are two types of attorneys. One type of attorney likes disputes, gets jazzed about it, gets their juices flowing by being involved in the dispute. Definitely. And they can be really harmful because they don't mind bringing you into the dispute and enlarging it. There's other attorneys who don't like disputes, who like the resolution. For me, I like the pleasant result of getting closure, getting compromise, accomplishing the goal and having the client move on, having accomplished the goal of recovery of possession of the unit. I don't like disputes. I don't have the attention span for an 18 month dispute. And the beauty of landlord tenant law, it's usually a 90 day event. So it's fast chess instead of, you know, four hour chess, it's a, a five minute chess game and you do it repeatedly. And that's what I like. And you will find that I'm not the attorney who's going to write an appellate brief. Um, the attorney is going to get down into the dispute, have a communication with the other side, see if there's a possibility of resolution, and get to that resolution as quickly as possible. Now, I'm doing buyouts all the time. So if in an example of a beneficiary who's camping in a unit, if it's going to cost $15,000 to go through the forcible detainer court process, but the beneficiary says, I'll leave in 30 days if you give me $5,000, I'm going to recommend that immediately. Oh, yeah. Even though the trustee, a sister who has a terrible relationship with the malingering person who's inside the unit, cannot stand the idea that this person gets paid for being um, obstinate. Um, and they say, hey, I'd rather pay you than pay this person. I have to immediately say, I'd rather pay this person to accomplish the goal so you can move on because I've got enough money and I don't need more money. I want to resolve your dispute ex uh, expeditiously. And I promise you, the only recommendation I'm going to give you is if I were standing in your shoes, what I would do. And that's what I do as a practitioner. I Again, I assume that San Francisco and LA are fairly similar in terms of markets, pricing, uh, legal situations, maybe San Francisco is a little more cutting edge than LA, but we're right behind on most laws and such. I commonly come across cases where we have offered on buyouts 30, 40, and fifty thousand dollars, where the by not by selling it with that tenant in there, refusing that buyout, the seller is going to get less by about $150,000 or $100,000 less. So they're they're going to lose money um, and, and, and write it off and if they leave the person in. We offer 30, 40, up to 50. I've seen in certain, I can think of one case in particular. And I, I, I walk away saying to myself, somebody bad's going to buy this property and get them out. It's not going to cost them $50,000. They're going to pay somebody 500 bucks and have them removed. Is a number in the buyout, like, is a common buyout in your market $5,000 or forgiving back rent or? I, I used that $5,000 figure uh, gently because I didn't want to uh, cause uh, people's hair to uh, go up in the back of their neck. But the average buyout in San Francisco is 43000 44000 There you go. There you go. Uh, so 43000 So that happens really, regularly. That's not a, that's not a, that's no, not, I just made that number up. That's no, a, it's, it, 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 the reality is, is what I am involved in is arbitraging vacancies. 
that there is a value in real estate on vacancies especially yes. because of rent control. Yes. Uh, every unit, um, uh, an easy math figure is if you could get an extra thousand dollars of rent on a unit increases the value of the building a hundred thousand dollars. So if a tenant is two thousand dollars below market and you offer them fifty thousand to vacate, your client is likely to appreciate the property a hundred and fifty thousand for right. paying fifty. Right. I do that all the time, and that's why I call myself a business attorney. I'm helping people make educated decisions about their real estate investment. They have a dispute and, you know, I'm doing buyouts in excess of uh, six figures or as low as a rent waiver. And people ask me, well, how do you, uh, what's the market value? There's not enough data for me to say one uh, range. I can tell you what the rent board comes out with. I can tell you that tenant attorneys try to get as much money and landlord attorneys are trying to give as little. And the tenant attorney is trying to capture all of the upside of the vacancy. And the landlord attorney is trying to uh, pay what the relocation payment would be, plus a little bit of a upside. And right. therein lies the rub. But I mean, San Francisco, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Oakland, Berkeley, Santa, Santa Monica, they have buyouts. In New York City, there's been buyouts in excess of a million dollars. So it is really about that there are... Uh, occupancy values because it allows you to freely use your property and there is inherently upside on selling a property vacant and selling a property tenant occupied, especially mm -hmm. if the rent is uh, below market. And that's what I'm um, primarily asked to do. And as an attorney, I'm not looking to win a dispute. It's not a baseball or basketball game. I'm asked to accomplish a goal as expeditiously as possible and make good business decisions, economic decisions on behalf of a client. And when you live in that realm, then you can really sleep easy because you're not enlarging a dispute for the sake of your billables. When you get so busy, you're not interested in more work. You're interested in resolving your case expeditiously so you can move on to the other case that's waiting for you. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I've, I've seen those, those numbers I see all the time. And I've not had the customers who are willing to write that check, unfortunately. And I guess it just depends on your market and who you deal with. And, and also probably the reason why I wanted to talk to you was to get this on video so I can send this to my next customer and say, hey, it's not me saying this. This is the market and this is the number. And, um, uh, but uh, it's a business decision at the end of the day. It's a business. You don't have to like it. It's just the way it is. It's yeah. And, you know, people can uh, protest, but in the end, uh, you're still tasked with making good decisions yeah. with the information that's presented to you. And here's the uh, simple solution. Someone asks, I'll leave for uh, 20,000 in 60 days, or you can um, try to remove me through the court. Well, the court's stuffed with COVID related backlog. You right. still have to pay an attorney. It's going to cost you, uh, you 15,000 for an attorney to go through a full on landlord tenant dispute that lasts uh, four to six months. Right. So 20,000 will look really good in retrospect. Right. And, you know, I'm comfortable looking over the horizon of a dispute and giving uh, advice clients will accept it or want to go through the path. And only in hindsight will we know if the decision was correct or not. Right. And with an attorney and landlord-tenant law, every day is an opportunity to do outstanding work. And every day is an opportunity to think, well, maybe I would have uh, chosen a different path. And you only know in retrospect whether the choices you made were prudent. The important thing is at the time of making the decision, you are evaluating all the variables and then making an educated guess about which path you think is going to be more uh, prudent. And when you get experienced after 28 years, you tend to make those good decisions. And what happens is 
I have clients who sometimes say, Mr. Bornstein, you were brilliant. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you were lucky on this one. And then sometimes I have clients who say, I'm disappointed about why this took so long and how, why it cost so much. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, you don't know how hard we worked. And another attorney who looked at the work I did would say that was a phenomenal uh, effort, Mr. Bornstein. You did top-notch work. So, right. you know, I um, often have dialogues with myself about it. And, you know, just as a side for people to understand, when I was an undergrad, I, I wanted to help people. And I was contemplating going into psychology and the, uh, being a psychologist and uh, therapist. And what I found as a landlord attorney, people come to me with a thorn embedded in their head. And the thorn is they've got a landlord tenant dispute that every day they have to interact with it, or they have a beneficiary that's causing them grief because they're in the unit. The family member passed away and they want to do right by the family member and they cannot do right because of this uh, dispute. As an attorney in landlord-tenant law, when I do good work and accomplish the goal of getting that person out or recovering possession, I know that that thorn in the client's head has been taken out. They move on. They're happy to pay me. They, the, the psychic problem that existed has been resolved. And I feel a sense of accomplishment because it is psychic trauma that gets met, uh, dealt with. And I realize now after practicing law 28 years, that as a therapist, I could be spending 20 years with a person in therapy and never know if I got to the root cause. As an attorney, it's a practical way to resolve psychic distress. Well, you know, and, and on this topic, again, when we spoke previously, one of the things that struck me, and I think it's true for me too, is your expertise in the law allows you to take that part of the dispute off the table so then you can pay attention to the communication and try to help your customer understand this is an emotional mistake you're making because these are the legal implications. And if they trust your legal judgment, then they can maybe address their emotional issue. If they if they are too emotional to respect you, they're not going to listen to you because you're what the hell do you know? But in your case, you are perceived as an expert in this field. So that's off the table. It forces me as the client to say, he might be right. Maybe I'm being too emotional about this. And I think that's a big part of my business also is, is trying to tell customers, these are your options. I wish you had that other option, but you don't. So here's what we can do for you. Sure. How much yeah. your business is really the soft skills of just communicating with your clients. Uh, agreed. And I often tell real estate uh, agents and other people, we're in the same business. We're managing relationships. We set goals for ourselves, set goals for the client and hopefully accomplish it. And we have to work together. Some relationships are difficult to manage because uh, you're speaking apples and they're hearing oranges. But the goal as an effective professional is to manage that relationship as successfully as possible. And uh, that's what I hope to do. Uh, my experience is being forthright, blunt, clear uh, is the best solution. Uh, and uh, people have to understand that uh, I'm not there uh, to, in some respects, coddle you in your anxiety. I'm there because you've told me you want to accomplish this goal and I laser focus on it and that I always have Kleenex in my room, but I give you time to uh, sort of emote, but then I get right back to how are we going to make decisions about this? And since you are the principal and I'm a fiduciary of yours, you're directing me and I give you advice. Uh, and um, I hope in the end that the advice is taken. And my expertise is usually that uh, people follow the advice. 
How often do you advise a client their actions versus giving them uh, clarity and having them make the decision? Uh, I give them the options. I ask them uh, which option to take. If I disagree with the option and I say, I think you're uh, you know, uh, walking up a steep hill that doesn't make sense, uh, I'd ask them to reconsider it. Uh, and you know, if I'm absolutely opposed to it, I'll uh, always tell them to get a second opinion. And I actually like uh, giving people second opinions and giving them the option of speaking to someone else. Because as I said at the earlier, uh, you can talk to two attorneys, get three opinions. <laughs> <laughs> but when I give someone the option of speaking to someone and their uh, second opinion is consistent with mine, then I feel like I've triangulated judgment. And landlord-tenant law, I, and I say this about legal work, it's not like buying a TV, right? Or it's not a math problem where there's an, a correct answer. There's moving targets and it it's a bit of an art. It's a bit of knowledge. It's a bit of social engineering. And what you want is an attorney who's adept at it. And there are different types of attorneys and you need right. to find an attorney that works well with you. Landlord tenant law, you really do need an attorney who is a good presence, can manage communications effectively and is efficient with their time. That's not an appellate attorney. Right. An appellate attorney will go in the back of a library, may drool out of both sides of their mouth. And you know, eight, eight hours later, they've got a beautiful written brief that right. works real well. That's not me, right? Uh, so when you're evaluating your attorney, you have to know what is the task I'm evaluating him with, because if I know that this is a 90 day affair and we're really trying to um, get a resolution to the matter, get a written agreement and ensure that the person will vacate and you've got a good agreement, that's someone who uh, is a little bit more efficient with email drafting uh, typical simple documents and making sure they show up to court and are prepared for the case. So um, as an attorney, you're, you're licensed in California only or other states as well? Um, licensed in California. And, and, from and there are some firms that will have offices throughout the state. Uh, my offices are in uh, Oakland and San Francisco. I radiate out of that area and do uh, go up as far as Sacramento for some work, uh, Santa Cruz for some work. And that's really the circumference. Uh, I do give consulting in Los Angeles and other places. The one impediment is that landlord-tenant matters do require court appearances, whether it's a settlement conference or a, a court trial or a jury trial or pre-trial motions. And it just is not efficient for a boutique office to be running down to uh, Southern California by plane to uh, show up at a uh, court hearing. And for eviction uh, here during uh, COVID, during COVID, according to the court, uh, post-COVID, restrictions is um, appearances in court in eviction court required in person or do they allow uh, video uh, they did allow, like they did allow uh, videos and uh, I think some of the interesting um, interesting aspects of the pandemic were that there was a reliance on uh, video appearances which allows you to remain in your office and still uh, appear in court I think some of that will stick uh, settlement conferences are uh, sometimes now by uh, uh, Zoom. It allows you to be more efficient. I had a jury trial in Alameda County on a eviction that was exempted from the moratorium because it involved uh, health and safety. 
and I had a jury trial where uh, the jurors appeared on the screen like the Brady Bunch, where they had different yeah. boxes, and I would speak to uh, the jury by uh, remote, and um, not something I want to do uh, all the time, but something that um, you know I had to do on behalf of a client. Well, fantastic. Uh, if somebody has a particular real estate case that regard, regarding evictions, consulting in Los Angeles or Northern California in those counties, what's the best way for them to reach out to your office? Um, my easiest approach is uh, by email, daniel at bornstein.law. Um, and I'll say it again, daniel at bornstein.law. I found that chasing phone calls is uh, always uh, a race to uh, futility. And an email is for me the best way to engage. And if you email me, you'll get an email response back within 24 hours. And if I can't help you out, I can provide you a referral. And if it's an easy question, I'm happy to answer. And if it's a more cumbersome question, I'll ask for a half hour meeting with you. Fantastic. Well, I'll put the details in the um, show notes as well. So anybody who's watching this on the live stream, I, again, Daniel at Bornstein.law, not .com, .law. And um, I, I just can't tell much. I appreciate the time with you today. It's been fantastic. I know I learned a lot, both about the eviction process, but more importantly, just about the business of law and the business of working with customers. It's just been a fantastic experience. I'm glad everybody on the, on the call today and watching. Thank you so much, Daniel. We, I really appreciate you. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's a privilege to participate. And, um, you know, kudos to you for uh, being involved in this and uh, communicating uh, so successfully with client base. It's uh, something that uh, I appreciate as well when I see it. Well, great. Thanks. Thanks so much. And for the rest of you, this is Probate Weekly. We do it every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. We live stream it on YouTube and Facebook. You can watch recordings there. Uh, you can go to episodes.probateweekly.com if you want to see the past episodes. You can come in live if you go to probateweekly.com. You can register for the Zoom, come in live and ask questions and participate in the chat and you know, network with other people on the call. Glad to have you guys network. In fact, before we finish, you might want to put your names, addresses, phone numbers, uh, email addresses or whatever you're looking for. Put in the chat and we'll save that and distribute it as appropriate. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a fantastic week. And we'll see you guys next week. All the best. Thank you very much. Thanks, Continue. Appreciate it. Appreciate it.